coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. This is our crazy, crazy rich Asian episode where we're about to spend probably four hours talking about the hottest Asian American film ever, ever made. So here we go. This is East Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk on a party barge in international waters is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Hey there, everyone. How you doing? All right. How you doing? We are very pleased and fortunate to have with us also this week for this I mean, it's a special episode, to be sure, for a lot of reasons. We're going to get into some of those reasons. Um, but Mr. Wilson Kwong from the website Throwdown815. So how are you doing, sir? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Um, as Kevin said in the intro, we are here to talk a little bit about this small film that's uh, kind of making some news called Crazy Rich Asians. And uh, today, you know, normally I cover what we would consider technically the West Screen stuff now that I'm back in the States. But uh, this is, you know, this is the hybrid, the nexus of things we love to talk about because it is firmly rooted in the East as well. Um, So Kevin's going to take over the bulk of the initial review with this film today. But before we get into that and the little bit of news that we have this week, um, let's throw it over to Wilson. Wilson, tell the people out there a little bit about who you are and and the writing you do and, and... you know, your your thoughts on, you know, Asian cinema and why you write about it. Yeah, for sure. So, um, based out of Toronto, and uh, I don't work in the film industry, but uh, like a lot of people out there, I'm sure, really like watching movies, um, have a lot of thoughts, opinions on cinema. So, about about two years ago or so, I started this website randomly, Throwdown 15, and uh, the idea is that it's, it's a platform for me to just write about stuff. So, there's a lot of junk on the website. I feel like sometimes I just rant about a lot of stuff, but I try to focus in on um, topics in Hollywood, Asian cinema, write a lot about superhero things as well. So, um, you know, just been trying out different things. Like for a while, I started interviewing a bunch of festival programmers around Toronto. Um, right now I'm doing this retrospective on kind of Marvel movies where I'm trying to watch every single one over a very long period of time. So it's a very sane way of doing a, a marathon of the films and um you know whenever there's you know an asian movie i keep up with hong kong cinema predominantly but anything related to asian cinema um i try to write about and um obviously with you know crazy rich asians wrote about that as well so um in general to be honest i don't know you know who actually goes on my site or how much traffic it gets so i'm just kind of happy to to be here and that i got invited to the chat on on this podcast i mean i've been listening to for for a number of years now so um just happy to be here well thank you for taking the time to come on and talk with us as well um again do check out his site um because i you know 
go there from time to time to check out what articles he's been writing, particularly when he's covering Asian cinema. And some, some really good stuff. I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have him come on and to share some of his thoughts about uh, this film we're going to be talking about today and about the idea of Asian cinema in general. Now, those of you who've listened to me opine about living here in South Florida and the uh, five-hour commitment that it takes me every once in a while when AMC decides to show maybe a Chinese film or a Hong Kong film now and then, um, I do want to ask you, Wilson, what is it like up there? Because you do have a pretty strong presence for Asian cinema. You, you guys are the heart of you know one of the bigger international film festivals of the world, right? Um, right. Do you get pretty much everything from Hong Kong that's uh, going to be playing internationally and from China? So I think it's it's something that's changed over time. When I was so I grew up in Scarborough, which is one of the suburbs in Toronto that's probably a bit more kind of Asian predominant. So um, growing up back then, I guess when when the Hong Kong film industry was a maybe a little bit stronger, uh, they they had specific theaters that just played Chinese movies. Um, so that kind of happened back in uh, whatever the nineties, and then they all kind of closed down. And then for for a while, the only place you could actually get Asian movies in, in theaters was during film festival. So, um, you know, TIFF being the biggest one starting next week, um, which I attend every year, that, that shows a lot of Asian stuff, um, both from, you know, Hong Kong, Japan, Korea, everywhere. Um, but then more recently, I guess, the, the biggest cinema chain in, in Canada is Cineplex, and they, they started playing a lot of stuff, which I think you get in the States as well, from WellGo USA. So it's, it's you know, everything that, that I guess gets distributed by that company is shown in theaters um but otherwise you know aside from from film festivals there's there, there was a huge market for for buying kind of blu-rays and dvds in stores not as big as it used to be but um it's one of those things where if if you if you want to keep up with asian cinema and you want to watch movies you can always buy them i guess when they come up on on home video but from a theatrical standpoint right now i guess it's really just whatever will go usa distributes and um kind of the number of film festivals that happen throughout toronto mm, yeah that's mm-hmm. it's disheartening too because i mean you mentioned uh, some of the private cinemas that were showing stuff that's kind of how i got introduced to hong kong cinema back in the 90s as well and most of those are just you know non-existent now and right. even the big stuff that gets through Wellgo, maybe one out of every 10 movies i think that they're releasing stateside is going to make it to miami when I do go see something, like I think the last thing I saw was Animal World, I'm the only person there. Mm-hmm. Nobody yeah. else, is, nobody else is there watching these movies, and I don't think it's lack of a significant uh, population of Asian folks living in Miami. I mean, the only place I think there'd be more of in Florida is maybe Orlando. You know, it seems to me like people are just not that interested. Bollywood cinema, different story. Lots hmm. of theaters showing Bollywood cinema um, in and around this area, and I guess there's enough financial incentive for these theaters to run lots of different uh, Bollywood titles. But just in general, I mean, where do you, where does your heart lie in terms of, of Asian cinema or Hong Kong cinema or China cinema? Do you have a particular genre? Are you more sentimental towards a particular era? Do you like more current movies or are you more nostalgic for stuff that's on home video? I think in general, I mean, definitely Hong Kong cinema is where, where my heart is. And um, I guess in general, probably more more nostalgic for um, not even the things in the 90s, but even kind of the early 2000s. I think, you know, I, I haven't written about this yet. It's something I want to write about eventually, but it's I find myself 
constantly watching a lot of Hong Kong movies and just kind of thinking, oh, this isn't that great. And every once in a while, it'd be a movie that, that isn't that great. But then I think to myself, at least this feels like a Hong Kong movie. And I think, mm. um, unfortunately, it's gone to that sentiment where sometimes even though um, the quality of filmmaking isn't that isn't that great, if it feels kind of genuine, it feels Hong Kong for whatever reason, it just seems like, um, seems like a win. Um, so I guess in many ways, I'm probably more nostalgic for some of the older things. Um, but but in general, I, I think I think I don't know, partly because of that, and uh, you know, you only have so much time in a day. I ended up branching out to a lot of other cinemas as well. So I think before I didn't used to keep up as much with with Korean cinema, whereas now I guess even with Netflix, something just pops up, and I end up grabbing gravitating a bit more towards that. But um, but in general, I mean, I still buy all the the Hong Kong Blu-rays whenever they they do come out in in Toronto. So I'm still trying to trying to hang on to that, I guess. <laughs> and you guys have a pretty vibrant uh, video market, right? Do you, do you have stores that <clears throat> sell stuff directly or do you have to order online? Yeah, so they, um, I, I do order off Yes Asia quite a bit um, just for yes. convenience sometimes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but in general, and part of the reason is because it's there used to be a lot of, of, of home video places within kind of the greater Toronto area um, that sold real, real Blu-rays, not just kind of the, the, the pirated stuff, which is still very, very large and heavy. Um, but now, to be honest, even within kind of close to where I live, there's there's only like a handful of stores that still sell that. And I think because they're, it's become such a niche market, the even like the, the pricing is a lot higher. I don't know if it's because they get taxed more, but it's just, it's gone to a point where it's, it's a bit cheaper to to order through Yes Asia, so um, end up doing that a lot more. But there's still there's still a market here for sure. That's good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're gonna talk a little bit more um, with Wilson and some of his thoughts on stuff like this as we get into our review. As I said, for now though, we've got a little bit of news this week. So let me do what I always do and throw the talking stick over to Kevin with this week's news. All right, here at the news desk, uh, try and keep it short and simple because uh, we have to do our... Well, I was kidding about four hours, maybe just three, uh, <laughs> about this this film we're about to talk about. Um, first news, uh, the Oscar picks for the best foreign film race has started. And while I'm sure Hong Kong is still contemplating whether to send Meow to the Oscars, uh, Japan has already chosen their pick, and that's Shoplifters, which is a totally um, normal pick because it was the winner of the Palm d'Or this year, and and it's just a damn good movie. Um, I think this is the first time, perhaps, that a Korea film has been chosen to represent Japan the Oscars, which is a real weird thing to note because Koreeda is one of the most consistently strong filmmakers in Japan and but if for some reason the establishment doesn't really like him very much seems like the the Japan Academy Award don't really like to reward his films um the people who choose um uh the representative the Oscars don't like to pick his films and then suddenly they realize that uh they can no longer push it off when the man is winning a palm d'Or over in Cannes um so yeah, what 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 do you think, uh, Paul? What do you think, or Wilson? What do you guys th- are you guys keeping up this year's films in Hong Kong or Taiwan or wherever? Any any films that you like to see represent the countries over at the Oscars this year? In terms of movies from Hong Kong, I'm trying to think if if there even is one. Like off the top of my head, to be honest, I can't think of any specifically from Hong Kong. I wish I wish I could. <laughs> No, no, it's actually yeah. perfectly normal given I wish I could, given yeah. seen this year's Hong Kong films. Yeah. That's why I think Mao is still a, hard, a, a strong contender. 
Yeah. I, I wonder if Singapore is going to send crazy rich Asians. <laughs> I don't know if they can, though, right? I don't even know if it's... Uh... <laughs> I'm sure they'll find some way. Uh, Paul, Paul, what do you think? Um, please don't say... Please don't say the Meg. Please no, don't say no, the Meg. no, not the Meg. Uh, maybe <laughs> Seven Guardians of the Tomb or something. Um, <laughs> no, uh, you know, I, I'm really anxious to see Shoplifters, to be sure, because so many people have given it such, you know, glowing, glowing reviews and said it's really, really good. So um, I think it's, you know, it's about time that uh, they stop treating him like he's got the Spielberg disease or something and start realizing that he's making some good films and he needs some recognition for it. So do you think it's got a chance to win, Kevin? Um, I certainly think it has a chance at the shortlist, but this year is the competition is very tough. Um, I think uh, Hungry's already sent uh, Sunset, which is the new film from the director of Son of Saul, which um, is premiering Venice this week. Um, I think a couple of canned contender also being sent, but of course you're sending the Palm Door winner, right? Um, no, I think it has a good chance of being there, but if um, South Korea also has a strong contender, which also came out of Cannes, which is Lee Chan-dong's Burning, and that film actually led the critics um, the critics' poll in Cannes instead of Shoplifters. And then, of course, it depends on what the voters in the Academy over in the U.S. does when it all goes over. And, of course, South Korea hasn't confirmed that it has chosen Burning yet. It could end up sending, you know, something like Rampant, the period zombie movie that's coming out in October. Um, you really never know about these things, right? So yeah. uh, it's going to be a pretty interesting race. Um, but the thing is, we all know the Academy is pretty Eurocentric in these things. Although Japan has won before. It's been shortlisted. It's won before. Last time it was Departures. The Shoplifter is not that heartwarming movie that, you know, Academy voters might go for when it comes to best foreign film. But now, of course, the voter base has changed quite a bit since... Departures won 10 years ago. Um, I think it was 10 years ago. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how, how it does at this year's race. Has anything been submitted from mainland China? No, but they always, they're always they always known for picking like the worst movies. So, But at this year... They're going to pick Azura, right? They, they're going to pick like... Uh, I'm sure they're going to pick like Europe Raiders or something because they think the foreigners <laughs> oh, no. like it. <laughs> uh, no, they, they once... I think the year that... At the Olympics, they picked like a documentary that no one saw about the Olympics. It was like a little really terrible soft power move. Mm. Um, what is like, what just just pick a Zhang Yimou movie and just go with it, just run with it. Like, you guys got you guys have a Chen Kai Ge movie this year, you guys got a Zhang Yimou movie this year, you guys got Zhang Wen movie this year, and then I'm sure they're gonna end up picking like Animal World because that's Michael Douglas, Tiny Times <laughs> Six, right? Yeah. So, so uh, it's it's China. Forget it. Like they're gonna act like they don't need it, and then they're gonna act all pompous when they get it. So it's no point even considering China because they're gonna just act like eh, we never needed it, we never wanted it, whatever. The the more interesting picks would be South Korea uh, and how, yeah, East Asia. Unfortunately, these days is all about is Japan versus um, Korea now because Hong Kong doesn't have any fight anymore in terms of these things. Taiwan is weak. Um, so when it comes down to East Asia, you have two very strong can contender, and I think Korea is going to pick Lee Chan Dong's film, and now Japan has picked Korea. So that is the the race I'm keeping my eye on. 
since the film festival starts next week, I'm actually watching all those movies you just listed. So I think I have Shadow, Burning, Shoplifters, um, the Janka. So pretty much all the movies you mentioned, I'm watching as well. So. Oh yeah, the Janka Ge. Yeah. yeah, I swear, Janka Ge is probably so good to China, we'll probably forget to pick it. So, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> All right, our final bit of news for this week, a uh, little bit related to our film, right? Yeah, this is uh, sort of our segue into Crazy Rich Asian because now there's a Crazy Rich Draft Dodger involved in the story. Um, Kevin Kwan, who is the author of the book, who we apparently moved to the U.S. when he was 11, um, now wanted in Singapore because uh, apparently all Sing- or male adult age male in Singapore are required to serve in the military in Singapore. And because Kevin Kwan had um, reportedly failed to renounce his citizenship, uh, his Singaporean citizenship, because you can't have dual citizenship between uh, Singapore and and other countries, he is still technically a Singaporean citizen. And he did not report back to Singapore for his military duty and is now wanted that if he steps into Singapore, he could be going to jail for three years and be fined for a ton of money. so which I guess that's why he wasn't at the Singaporean premiere of the film last week. Um, but just sort of like a gossipy thing, I guess, that, yeah, um, apparently it's very difficult to renounce your citizenship um, for Singapore. Uh, and that if you don't, you might get arrested for not going to the army. Yeah, they have to do what it's called NS or National Service. And, I, you know, I think I read that the fine is just like 10000 so I think yeah. you know, I think it's not like a, a major a major thing, but he it's it's a fine and or prison time. So you know that could be serious because I doubt he you know wants to spend three months or three years in uh, in prison for for that. I'm sure they'll probably work something out where he does some community service and uh, you know pays a larger fine or something, and it'll it'll all be good. Well, in it the seems end. like. It seems like he's doing it knowingly because according to the government, um, that he hasn't actually entered Singapore since 2000, at least 2000, because all the records before that had to be like manually searched or something. Apparently they use microfilm. So right at this point, they can only say that they don't have any record of Kevin Kwan being in Singapore since 2000, which is funny because he wrote an entire book about Singapore, if and if he hasn't been there since 2000, he was sort of he based it off his childhood memory, or what did he based it off of? I mean, the fact that he hasn't been there for 20 years, um, how did that affect the book? That's what I'm mm. wondering. Even though he says to media that he re- occasionally returns to Singapore, um, according to government, he hasn't been there in 20 years. So I'm I'm wondering if that affected the book or if if that affected the voice of the book. And we could talk about this later when we talk about the film because we know that the Singapore we see through that film is not exactly the Singapore that that Singaporeans know as as Singaporeans have already noted. Um, so it is an interesting sort of gossipy thing, but at the same time makes you uh, makes you wonder a little bit. That's going to wrap it up for our news this week. When we come back, it's on to our review of Crazy Rich Asians.
And welcome back. So as we said, our singular film review this week is Crazy Rich Asians, directed by John M. Chu, with a cast of people that you should know from many different places. We're going to talk about the cast in a bit. So Kevin, take it away. All right, so here's the synopsis from an official source. Uh, New Yorker Rachel Chu, played by Constance Wu, accompanies her longtime boyfriend, Nick Young, played by Henry Golding, to his best friend's wedding in Singapore. Excited about visiting Asia for the first time, but nervous about meeting Nick's family, Rachel is unprepared to learn that Nick is not only the scion who uses that word anyway, of one of the country's wealthiest families, but one of its most sought-after bachelors. With jealous socialites and worse, Nick's own disapproving mother, played by Michelle Yeoh, taking aim, it soon becomes clear that while money can't buy love, it can definitely complicate things, which is really the understatement of the year, if you have seen the film. Uh, so, what can I say? I mean, I, okay, who, which one of us here has read the book? I haven't read the book. Was that have you read the book? I have not read the book either. Yeah, Paul I, has read the book. I've read the book, yes. Are the, 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 the first one. The book? first one. I'm okay. I'm only a, a, about two chapters in on the second one, and I've only recently started that. So, uh, yeah, but there's three books in, in the series. Oh, yeah, everyone wants to make a trilogy, I guess. That's, that's why. Okay. Um, so I haven't read the book. So I'm going in from the burden that is it's holding and – you know, which was me buying as I admittedly buying into the promotional standpoint. Let's face it, because it's not really a great rom com. It's just okay, so a story is Asian American woman goes to Singapore. And to be honest, um I find that and this is gonna be offensive, like so there were words that there was word that the studios wanted to replace the Constance Wu character with a white woman, uh, a Caucasian woman, a Caucasian American woman. And to me, I would have found that more interesting than an Asian American uh, character going to Singapore. But um, I'll talk about that a little bit later because this whole thing is about culture clash, right? It's about cultural, um, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, cultural shock, right? Um, and I don't find it to be a, a really romantic movie because you have this. Um, Henry Golden character Nick Young, he's in this constant mode of him be, being totally in love with this 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 um, economics professor, and and there's and yeah, it's all about like how she has to win over the disapproving mother, and the whole idea is that the disapproving mother doesn't like Americans and doesn't doesn't think she's good enough and blah blah, and it's like a meet the parents type of deal, um, and I just didn't find that a very interesting story um and of course the the interesting part is that sh that the guy is super rich so that's already sort of couple of things hitting at me is like asian americans seeing asians to me is not interesting when it's done this way because then the whole money thing distorts it the whole how distorted way of asian americans seeing asians see asian americans distort it um and and to me i was just sort of confused all around um, it's a very distorted mirror to me how this whole Asians thinking that Americans only chase happiness and that Asians resent American people for it. It's a very distorted mirror to me because, you know, in Hong Kong, the last 10 years, young people making movies are all about chasing dreams and the price of chasing dreams. And is it OK to chase their dreams? 
it's it's like a if they have watched um a collection of Asian cinema or just Chinese or Hong Kong cinema, it's a subgenre. <laughs> a movie of, about people chasing their dreams. And is that an American value? No, it's become a young people value. So to me, the whole film is already distorted. It already sets back the idea of Asians by 10, 20 years of what real Asians are like. So to me, it's already an odd thing to watch. Um, and then you have the cliches, you know, the um, you have either you have either very super handsome uh, muscly American, uh, uh, muscly and handsome by American standard Asian guys on one end, which is like Henry Golding and the guy who plays his best friend, who is also like, and then the guy who, um, who plays the, 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 the brother in law. Or you get the super nerdy, uh, out of shape Asian guys. You got the Jimmy O. Yang, you got the Ronnie Chang, you got the, the, the brother of an Aquafina character. And it's like, w- what happened to the middle part? Like, yeah, okay. You also have the you also have the overweight gay guy, okay. But then he's still like, like it's like up into the middle, like okay, like normal people, <laughs> you know. Forget about like middle class people. I'm just talking about people who look who look normal, like completely gone. So when you talk about like defeating Asian cliches, then you play right into it by presenting these nerdy Asian guys or these um these, you know, Ken Jeong types um, who are like the Psy, the Psy uh, stereotypes. It, it's already just a bunch of odd things running at me that I couldn't even concentrate on the story. So this is my own point of view. I'm sure to some people they can ignore all of that. I'm sure Chinese people, actually, I'm, it's funny, ironically, I'm sure Asian audiences can ignore all of that. Because, you know, they've seen so much representation of Asians on screen that they don't think about whether this is going against a, a, a stereotype or not. They just see it as, ha-ha, nerdy brother, ha-ha, handsome guy, and then that's it. Uh, so, ironically, those are the people who aren't thinking about it. Um, and then you have... the So, the main plot is fine. I mean, yeah, it's Meet the Parents, and then, you know, it's also the plot of every other soap opera in Taiwan or China or Singapore or whatever. Um, I'm sure, Paul, you, you actually do watch... A, a, a Singaporean soap opera, so I'm sure you can step in and, and tell me if something like this has already been done in in the sh- in the shows you watch. But um, uh, to me, there's nothing special about this story, um, and and I think that whole side plot with um, what's her name? Is it Gamma Chan? Gemma Chan? Yeah, Someone... as Astrid. Astrid, yeah, yeah, Gemma or Gamma? Uh, I think it's Gamma. Think Gemma. Is it Gemma? Okay. I'm not. I don't watch humans, so I'm not sure. I don't either. <laughs> don't watch either. I mean, I, I, a quick look at um, Wikipedia would have solved this, but sorry. Um, yeah, I heard. I, I just found her whole because one. First of all, she's like super cold. She has that um, very odd. Um, um, what's the word? Like this. This, and I've got to use like an Asian star equivalent, like a Kelly Chan type of very cold exterior, where you keep thinking that she's like a Bond villain that she's about to like. <laughs> <laughs> bust out with a laser ray to like destroy all of Singapore, but then but then she just tried to hide it all by 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 having marital problems. Like, but it, it, even by the very end, like, so she plays um a Nick's sister, and then she has um and she's like the supportive one. She's a good guy, and then she has marital problems because her 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 husband 
thinks that he keeps acting like he's not good enough for her family and has, you know, real, like, manhood things. And, and she's trying to be super nice and supportive, but she's doing it looking like she's a Bond villain. And um, it was really distracting because, first of all, her acting is not great, and the subplot feels a bit useless. It, it only diverts from the main plot. When you keep wanting to see how Rachel sees Singapore, how she explores this area of the world, how she deals with her in touch with her roots, the film never touches it. Instead, it's, oh, wait, she's in Singapore, she goes to Hawker Center, suddenly all, oh, it's great, and then Singapore hates her, and then, oh, no, I'm gonna lose the guy, and then, oh, no, disapproving mother, and then that's it. Of course, it's impossible to touch on so many things that a book can touch on in just a, just a, just a, just a length of a film, but then you just wonder why are you wasting 20 minutes on this side plot about um, the sister who looks like she's nice but actually is nice but you keep thinking she's not nice um so it's an odd subplot around that i thought could have been like deleted um and then the whole attitude about rich people you know we i live in asia and i live in hong kong where the wealth poor um poverty distribution gap is the largest and i think singapore also is one of the largest wealth um wealth distribution gap in the world uh, and the idea that we're supposed to look up to these obscenely Asian rich people as some kind of role model. Oh, okay, so one of them is a nice guy, and therefore he's okay. The rest of them, I can't tell if I'm supposed to laugh at them or not. And I think it really has a real weird attitude because I'm guessing it's using the the idea of of wealthy Asians to to say to tell the West. So, for example, that opening scene you have. Um, Michelle, you're walking into a hotel, and then you got this racist um, concierge who says, maybe you should try Chinatown. And then she goes and buys a whole hotel just to show that, that you know, Asian people are not to be bullied, I guess. And then, and then suddenly rich people are supposed to be funny. So I can't tell what is using this, this obscene wealth ass. Like, is it supposed to be... Um, some kind of tool to go against the imperial overlords of the West? Or is it supposed to be something that corrupts people, make them look silly the way that the film kind of does? Uh, is it something that makes families become obsessed with status and power, like also the film suggests? It's suggesting too many things. And as someone who lives in the city where it has a really huge wealth distribution gap, I don't find you this rich people thing funny. These are people who oppress the working class every day. And you see all these servants walking around the film who are Asian servants, by the way. And and I find its, its position on wealth very confusing. Um, and it was funny because... Um, I, there, there were scenes where Hong Kong people were laughing at scenes that weren't particularly funny, especially the wedding scene, that real super absurd wedding where you got the water rolling down and the, the bride is blah, blah, and then everyone's holding these lit branches and it's apparently the wedding cost $40 million. Hong Kongers couldn't stop laughing. And I was wondering, it was like, and I didn't find it funny at all. I'm like, it's supposed to be a romantic scene, right? Because you got the, the whole... You know, the, the two characters whispering each other and, and saying I love yous and supposed to be romantic. But Hong Kongers couldn't stop laughing at how absurd it is. And that's how I found already, like, huh, is this movie reconnecting with these people? Um, and, and I just found that interesting. 
the last thing I want to say is, I, I, and before we throw it over to um, uh, Wilson, then we can go back and forth about the other topics, is that I really hated the music choices of this film. Um, it still uses that whole, like, the um, that 60s Shanghai or um, American sailors nightclub music that Asian Americans think Asian listen to. Um, and I hated it so much like it's either that kind of music or it's either chinese false chinese covers of western songs that don't exist okay the cellier material girl cover is awesome okay that that exists that is a thing and i love that song that's great but everything else is like it's either we can only be asian americans if we sing chinese language covers of American music or Western music, or we're playing that whole American sailor music, and it's like there are musicians, there are original music being made in Asia, and there are musicians in Singapore, in Taiwan, in 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 Southeast Asia, in Thailand, in Singapore, in Singapore, and in Hong Kong, everywhere, they're making original music, and it would have been this would have been the perfect chance. If you're talking about Asian American representation, why can't we one either? you know, show off some Asian American music musicians to or show off some Asian musicians um, instead of using, making a terrible cover of Yellow that with lyrics that I couldn't understand um, or, or you know, still doing I love, you know, what was it? That song, um, I want uh, that, that, God, I hate that freaking song. Uh, so, so it was just something that really, really, really annoyed me at about, and to me, this is not Asian Americans looking at their own roots. This is just Americans looking at Asia. Another example of Asians, uh, Americans looking at Asia, um, and maybe slightly better one than usual. But that's all it is to me. Um, although I'm sure the maker of Tiny Times, they're watching this and they're like, "I wish we had done this." Or I'm sure fans of Tiny Times or people will hate Tiny Times and watch it and go, "This is what Tiny Times should have been," and that's not really a high standard to reach in my opinion. So that's it. Okay. For me, that's it for me review wise. Um, Wilson, let's forward over to you. Yeah, for sure. So I think my relationship with the movie has kind of changed over the past year. So when I, when I first heard of crazy rich agents, again, hadn't read the book before and it was announced, I kind of told myself, I'll, I'll probably end up watching this regardless. And then, um, the trailer came out and my first reaction was this, this looks lame. This does not look like a good movie. Um, it just, it looks, kind of very out there. I wasn't really sure what they're trying to get at. And I guess when I when I finally saw it, to be honest, I was pretty surprised because I, I walked out of the theater actually just having a lot of fun. And I think um, it's definitely not a, it's not a perfect film. It's far from it. And I think Kevin touched upon pretty much everything. I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I'll, I'll also add that, you know, for a movie that's supposed to represent Asian Americans, um, which it doesn't necessarily do the greatest job at. It really only features one Asian American. It's really only Constant Wu's character, and everyone else is actually not Asian American. They're they're Asians who are from other areas who happen to also speak English. But um, overall, though, I, I found I, I walk in the movie thinking that it was going to be extremely over the top. It was going to be very, very cringeworthy. Um, but I was just surprised that it, it wasn't either of those things or I mean it was it was a bit over the top maybe there were some cringeworthy parts but overall it was it was pretty like tender and real and uh you know the parts that were supposed to be funny even though it's still based a lot of its humor off of a lot of kind of stereotype tropes 
it was it was it was funny and it could just be kind of the the theater that I watched in but overall I had a lot of fun and um you know I thought the the acting for the most part was was pretty good um I thought the casting was 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 on point you know I'm a huge fan of Constant Wu um actually one of my blog post when I first started the website two, year, two years ago was was about her and you know it just it's 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 nice seeing her in kind of a, a bigger role and not playing her, her usual character that we're used to seeing her on tv and overall you know even though I don't think it had the best kind of representation of this kind of clash between you know eastern culture and you know western culture within an eastern person I thought it did a like a relatively good job of at least kind of introducing some of the kind of family relationship values of, of Asian people, um, at least, you know, very superficially. So so overall, I guess it could be because I, I walked into the movie with kind of somewhat lower expectations. I, I enjoyed it for the most part. Um, just in terms of other missed opportunities, um, from, from a music standpoint, um, I agree. It was, it was kind of weird that they did a lot of English covers. I'm sure that was done on, on, on purpose. Um, I'm not sure if the, the Coldplay cover... Um, for for yellow was meant to be you know very tongue in cheek but definitely a bit odd. Um, just to follow up on on Kevin's point though, I think it would have been cool to have music from from Lee Ham Wang who is kind of I think arguably the most successful Asian American artist kind of working today. Even though you know his success was from Asia and not in America, um, just you know if they were to have original music or just music from 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 Asian people, I thought it would have been really cool to to include him. Um, Another minor detail, I think, you know, if they were to do a cameo, having a cameo from from Daniel Wu would have been really awesome as well, just to kind of focus in on this Asian American theme. Um, I, actually, it was I was I was a bit. It really bothered me that they included Harry Shum Jr. as as a cameo. I just don't think he deserves that kind of cameo status. Nothing against him personally, <laughs> but just when he showed up on screen and it was it was shown as a cameo it just it just kind of made me jump off my seat and be like really him um but overall i think you know despite all that i think you know from from my standpoint um it's it's hard for me to i think look at the film just completely objectively just given the i guess cultural or pop cultural significance that that the film carries and um i think you know all this media coverage around how this is the first Asian American film in Hollywood, or from a, from a major studio in Hollywood in 25 years. Um, I, I guess it's all true, and it's 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 great. You know, I'm, I'm glad that this representation issue is is being addressed at least at least through one film for now, and hopefully it's a bit of a movement. Um, and I get that uh, you know seeing Asian people speak English on screen is a cool thing, um, even for me. Uh, you know, I, I was born in Canada, I spent my whole life here, and even though um, I, I think I'm relatively in tune with Asian culture because my parents, you know, they they, they kind of brought that on me. Um, it's still, you know, I I, I guess I, I, you know, I, I feel more towards uh, Western culture than I do um, Asian culture. Um, so for me, seeing even like seeing the Warner Brothers logo at the beginning and um, seeing you know Asian people or a bunch of them on screen speaking fluent English, um, it was it was it was a cool feeling. Like, and I and I understand that that type of Asian is a little bit different from you know say seeing Andy Lau uh, diffuse a bomb like in Hong Kong. It's a completely different setting in many ways. It's it's a different Asian, but you know at the same time there it's still Asian representation um, in in both instances. And I think it's it's a, 
a bit of a missed opportunity that of all the media coverage that's been going on. And I don't know if this is done intentionally just so they don't kind of take the point away that it focuses a lot on, um, you know, Asians being represented in Hollywood. And there's a lot of kind of Asian pride around that. Uh, I just think it would be it's it, it's kind of nice if there was also some Asian pride around just Asian cinema in general, since, you know, we seem to be, or at least in, in North America right now, a lot of Asians seem to be riding this this wave of, of, of Asian pride. Um, it'd be nice if they kind of looked in, in their kind of their own local cinemas, which I don't know what your, your experiences are, but from, or maybe Paul can speak to this, but then like for me, you know, and even though Toronto is a very vibrant multicultural city, um, you know, it's not all the Asians who grow up here follow Asian cinema. In fact, very few of them do. So, uh, you know, coming out of the film, these were thoughts that I had in my mind and then seeing a lot of the media coverage that happened both before and, and after the movie blew up, you know, you know, two or three weekends in a row. It was just, it just kind of bothered me that no one's really focusing on the fact that there there is Asian cinema out there. It's a little bit different, but it's it's still representation in some way. Yeah, um, I, I find it very funny that it's such a big deal in America how they talk about it's this you know milestone for Asian Americans or Asian Canadians or Asian North Americans I suppose because I guess because all the traits they write from American point of view so to them there is nothing beyond American cinema and everything else is sort of niche mm-hmm. and out there but the thing is Asia makes a lot of films so you know look at Japan makes like 300 films a year Korea probably 200 or 300 as well um, and then China 600, and then Southeast Asia also a couple hundred. We we make thousand a thousand films mm-hmm. over a thousand films a year, uh, and yet nothing seem apparently you know that doesn't matter. There is Asian representation on screen, just that Asian Americans choose not to watch it. Um, and does that say something? I mean, we. I grew up in America, but you know, I, I of course, I have been in touch with my Asian roots, and I live in Asia now, and I've been doing that. Um, so I don't really get. So I get it. I get it. Yeah. Okay. It's about seeing more Asian American actors. It's about Asian American actors getting their chance, day in the sun, mm-hmm. about being more than just John Cho and Dev Patel and just a handful of Asian American actors who are actually known by some people. Um, Beyond that, do you see anything else significant? Wasn't uh, any beyond that? You know about the fact that it's about Asian American actors getting their day in the sun. That being the significance of this film, do you think that there's other significance um, in the film? Um, so I mean, I think that's definitely the the biggest significance of the film. I think if you look at the the film itself as like a, a romantic comedy, is this. Is this like the pinnacle of what a romantic comedy or, or even like a, a, a film about, you know, Asian family values or, or whatever? It, it definitely isn't, right? I think if you if you wanted that, you would have to look, um, you look elsewhere, you know, watch like actual Asian cinema to get some of those kind of deeper, um, I don't know, those deeper messages and those deeper themes. But um, I think it's, it's, it's funny that you bring up the whole, um, you know, actors in, in America, because I think from, from, um, from a, an artist standpoint, so I mean, I have a cousin who's who's an actor who's who's Asian, and um, you know, one thing he always says it, it it has been very difficult, or has always been very difficult for for Asians to to get starring roles in in North America, whether it's in you know the Canadian 
industry, which is a lot smaller in Hollywood. So I think a film like this, if you're someone who works in film, um, especially in kind of in front of the camera, it's definitely a big deal from that standpoint because I think it just gives um, investors and executives who, I guess, for the most part, are still probably predominantly non kind of ethnic minorities, it kind of gives them the confidence to say, hey, you know, we, we can hire um, Asian American or Asian Canadian actors um, to to star in this film or in this show. So I think for them, it has, has a big value. Um, but aside from that, I think it's more, if, if anything to me, this is, it's it's kind of a um, a launching pad, right? It's a launching pad for people to know that, oh, so, so you know, Asian people can be romantic leads or, or 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 whatever but you know you would think that the next step is you know you want to be able to see um asian actors be everything else that that actors normally are you want to see them be be villains be heroes be cops firemen whatever it is and um you know as you said those things are happening all the time if you watch an actual asian movie you can get that kind of next step that i'm sure a lot of asian americans asian canadians are, are hoping for right now um so so i think it's just it's, it's not a matter of i'm not saying that everyone has to automatically, you know, be super invested in Asian cinema and, you know, you start keeping up with every single, whatever, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China movie. Um, I think it's a matter of just having a bit of awareness and knowing that, knowing that it's around, because like you said, it's, 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 there's thousands of films every year. It's, it's like a hundred, over a hundred years of history. And the fact that it's not really being mentioned at all, it just, it just kind of weird in my opinion. Well, I, I want to bring up something that I think I've told my friends is that, and I kind of said it jokingly, is that I feel really sorry for Charon Fat seeing Crazy Rich Asian success because when he made movies in Hollywood, yeah, there were a couple of stinkers, but the thing is when he did The Corrupter or when he did, um, um, what was it, And in the King, which I think it's okay, um, no one pushed for him. No one cared about mm-hmm. that he was, not, not enough people cared no, no, you don't see Asian American supports coming out to to see a Charon Fat movie, um, and I found that very sad. And I and I'm sad that his, they never the studios never figured out to to push the films that way, because I guess I'm guessing back in the late '90s or early 2000s mm-hmm. they still felt that they had to push to a white audience instead of trying to mobilize an Asian American audience. And and I wonder if that was why those Charon Fat films um, failed. And of course. Chine Fett also needed a much better agent. Um, <laughs> and so so I felt really weird about that. And and I guess another thing to where now that we're jumping from Chine Fat is that, okay, so we've seen Asian Americans or Americans look at Asia, but the fact is that Asians have not been so kind at looking at life in other countries as well. So I'm just, I guess I have to say credit where credit is due. The fact that the last the last good Hong Kong film that actually dealt with life in America or that actually attempted and did well succeeded in looking at life in America was An Autumn's Tale, which is from mm. 1985. And even that film was not like a perfect look or perfectly good representation of of, of, of life in America. Um, you, you know, every otherwise, if you see Sausalito, the, the San Francisco um, film that Leon Lai and Maggie Chan was on, I was like, insulted by that film because it was just like a such a silly way of looking how life is in america and the thing is okay maybe i can't when i think about those films the fact that asian hasn't done as well either in 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 representing life in other countries perhaps i shouldn't be so tough on crazy rich asians about how it sees life in singapore um but here here here's the difference then okay 
do you, should I ran an op-ed um, a couple weeks ago saying that you know the true true way for Asian Americans to succeed in cinema is that they have to be also be able to make terrible movies and 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 um, very mediocre movies that not every movie has to bear this weight of representation and that the day that Asian Americans can also make terrible movies and mediocre movies and good movies and not be considered Asian American movies then it, uh, it, it then that's a success success for Asian Americans in the film industry um, um, I think the last great Asian American film. I don't think Crazy Rich Asian is a good Asian American film. I think it's okay as a rom com, as good as, as fine as a commercial film. I don't think it's a good <clears throat> Asian American film. And then I realized that last year's uh, Justin Chong's Gook, Gook is probably one of the better best Asian American films I've seen. Um, but then here's the question: Should are we at this point where Asian American films should still? be all about asian americans because asian american films they they have to uh, they always assert this whole thing about asian american identity and and they are crazy about it like it's almost like every film is like a uh, educational tape talking about what the asian american experience is it's almost like mm-hmm. i can't wait to share my story with you it's not just i'm going to share a story it's just going to be my story do you think Asian American cinema is being overzealous? Do you think it's true that Asian American cinema has to make movies that aren't about Asian American experiences to truly be successful at the film industry? That's an interesting point. Um, just first off, when, when, you, when you said you were going to list a good Asian American film, I was afraid you were going to list Revenge of the Green Dragon, so I, I'm glad you did <laughs> <laughs> I would but, never list an Andrew Lau film <laughs> as a good film ever, okay? But, but but I think I think it's 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 an interesting point because you just just thinking um, again that's for me it's more a, an Asian Canadian experience but you know when I'm kind of living my day to day life it's not it's not just Asian people that I that I see you see other ethnicities right there's there's all sorts of people it's it's multicultural so so in my opinion um, if there's going to be if if Asian American filmmaking or Asian Americans are going to truly become mainstream in Hollywood. It should get to the point where it's it's normal to see a um, an Asian person just, uh, again, like you said, with the exception of, you know, like maybe John Cho and a few other people, but see Asian people on the regular be kind of headlining or be like a sub-character on like serious Hollywood movies, whether they're, they're kind of break Hollywood productions or whether they're more kind of serious dramas. I think when they're, when they're kind of blended in to... Um, Hollywood as as regulars and like you said it doesn't feel like just you know this is going to be an Asian American thing it's going to be about certain kind of Asian struggles something about immigrants when it gets to that point where it feels natural just to to see like an Asian actor I think that that's when they I don't know would, would truly find their spot and just thinking aloud now I mean if, if if I'm going to go on that thought there I think there have been successes over the past whatever decade or two. I mean, you look at people like like Lucy Liu, um, she's been around forever, um, John Cho, as you mentioned, Dev Patel, but there, I think there's a lot of actors out there who are, are Asian and have found their their own way into the industry and, and not being treated as, as a stereotype character. Um, it's just they're, they're kind of very far and in between. So if, if anything, I think a movie like this would hopefully be um, kind of spark a movement where like People like Lucy Liu or those types of actors become more regular, and you just you see Asian people in in serious movies, and it doesn't feel like such a such a big different deal. Yeah. Um. But one one thing I want to just just pop in my head is that, you know, uh, 
we've been using the term Asian Americans this whole time, but the thing is, should we as we're both Chinese, right? I assume we're both Chinese. Yeah. Um, as Chinese people, should we be offended that all of Asians get grouped under this huge umbrella of just Asian Americans? Instead of no one yeah. saying like Japanese Americans, Korean Americans, um, Chinese Americans, and then Vietnamese Americans, because even within those bracket, like within those sub sort of, you know, those ethnic groups, the experiences can be very different. For example, Japanese-American might have a more, um, uh, uh, what's the word, a more affluent upbringing, mm-hmm. um, just based on the way that they're, that the history of them being here. Um, or Korean-Americans who, you know, who are running away from Because Japanese-Americans, their immigration experience, what, why they became immigrants in America is different experience than why Koreans Americans became uh, immigrants in America and how they were raised up. Or Hong Kong Americans, um, who were a lot of us were middle class people could afford to to go over to to um, to America and then had different experience. Or Vietnamese Americans who escaped um, under different circumstances. How do you feel about that? This first of all, Singapore representing Asia. And two, how do you feel about this whole idea that Asian, um, quote unquote, Asian Americans? Why is it, yeah, that the, the fact that it's all one blanket? When we know for a fact that Asia in itself is a very diverse place with very different values mm-hmm. in different countries. I wonder, I wonder, I mean, I'm sure it was done intentionally, but I wonder if it was done intentionally because. I'm, I'm sure when they when they decided to make this movie, well, I mean, I guess technically the book was already called Crazy Rich Asians, but I'm sure they weren't just trying to market it to, you know, Chinese people or to Asian people. I'm sure their their goal was to market it to to everyone in America. And so I'm I'm guessing if they started throwing around very specific terms like you know this movie is is kind of a representation of, of Chinese Americans or or just one specific kind of ethnicity within Asia, it would it would make it even a bit more isolating than they probably thought it would be. So I wonder if intentionally they did that on on purpose to use it as an umbrella term. And I guess even from a marketing standpoint, um, I could see, you know, even if the, the Asians working on the film knew it was knew it was an issue, I'm sure it's something they probably would have just just stuck with because if it helps if it helps the film, it helps the film, right? So I wonder mm-hmm. if that was was part of it. And it's interesting that they picked the least populous Asian country to represent <laughs> of Asia. But, but, but one thing I wish that film had pointed out is that actually Singapore is the most diverse country right. in Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that wasn't even brought up in the film because, well, they were interested in the experiences of a Chi- of a, of a Chinese Singaporean family, not everyone else in Singapore, but yet the film is supposed to be crazy rich Asians. And then now we've, get into a whole conundrum and blah 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 okay um not from singapore so i can't really say how it how well it represented singapore but the thing is i've been to singapore like twice so and even then i know that singapore i see in the film is not the singapore that i've seen in my Mm -hmm. experiences just even as a tourist or and it's not hard to go around singapore it's a very small place it's a city but the thing is it's still picked you know Apparently, even the Hawker Center they pick isn't that good, <laughs> what I heard. And and the fact that it was very weird, the fact that they talk about Hawker Center like it's a new concept. It's like, guys, you have food courts in America. <laughs> like, it's the same damn thing. Just say it's a food court, but it's an open-air food court. Like, why do they have to go into a whole, like, 
an Anthony Bourdain-esque explanation about how Singapore is a place where food food hawker gets Michelin prizes. By the way, only one of them got a only one hawker stall got a St. Michelin prize. By the way, um, and and this whole like like Discovery Channel travel program for about five seconds for about five minutes there is a very mm. odd experience. But yet it is no no interest whatsoever in really exploring the Singaporean identity, the Asian American identity is is it just fall back on a lot of cliches about how Asians hate Americans who pursue personal happiness. And, um, um, I thought that was, um, very, uh, interesting. Paul, Paul, do you mind me bring you in here for a second and then, and then talk about the, the whole soap opera tropes. And cause like I guess that you, you watch Tang Lin, right? I assume. Yes. You still watch Tang Lin. Yes. And you watch these Singaporean soap operas. Are there storylines there that are similar to Crazy Rich Asians? Yeah, I mean, I, if, if if anybody's not heard me talk about it before, Tanglin is a long-running sort of half-hour, not really sitcom, but, you know, one of these half-hour shows that has some comedy, has some drama in it. And it, it, it really shows a wide range of Singaporeans, uh, unlike this film. <laughs> which is mostly you know just different different branches of uh, of of Chinese families and so in Tanglin they show they've got the Baskars which are like rich they're rich Indian family um the patriarch of the family is a, a doctor and his son's going to be a surgeon they've got the Ramans uh they've got the Tongs and the Lims who are Chinese families and there might be one other family and and lots of supporting characters um, predominantly, you know, the Tongs and the Limbs are Chinese families, so there's a majority there, but they all sort of interact, and they're all at different socioeconomic levels based on the kind of jobs they do. And it's by design, you know, it's, it's a show that's by design to show as diverse a population that represents Singapore as possible, but it's, I think it does a better job for any kind of media device to do a job of representation than this film does. And that's not to say I didn't like the film, but I do understand some of the criticisms from Singaporeans that have been written about it saying, this is not my Singapore. So, you know, I, I get that. I think we see in the scene where they drive, where um, the Picklin character drives uh, Constance Wu's character, Rachel, up to the, the house the first time and they get to the gate and they do the very typical thing. The girls get scared, you know, and and kind of using um, an, a sort of minority Singapore identity as a point of comedic interest. But that's about it. That's all that you're, you're kind of given. Um, in terms of like, there's another show that comes to mind called Sayang Sayang from 2008, which, Kevin, you'll know the lead actress, Michelle Chong. Um, that's a, oh, a, yeah. a series she did, and interestingly enough, it's a she's a very poor girl. Her family is like they 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 make barbecued pork, and she ends up attracting the eye of a guy from her wealthy family, a wealthy Chinese family, and the mother, the matriarch of that family, is actually Rachel's mother in this film. Um, that is actress uh, Tan Kang Hua, um, who's well known Singaporean actress. She's been on lots of shows over the years. And and she's, you know, again, it's the same kind of thing. She's like the Eleanor character here. Not quite as rich, maybe. You know, it's not ostentatious wealth, but she runs a very large business and is the head of the household. And, you know, the typical, you know, mother-in-law conflicts that you would expect to see in something like that. They're on display here. 
So I, you know, there's lots of stuff that's out there, easily accessible. Some of it's in Mandarin in Putuwa. Some of it, like Tanglin, all in English. You know, so watching lots of different people from Asia speaking English, it's it's there. It's available for you if you want to seek it out. But I do get the reason why this film is is making waves, and the people you know the different reviewers that I've listened to, um, some people on. Uh, NPR talking about, for example, it's not just that this is a film featuring so many Asian American faces on a Hollywood screen, but the gaps that have occurred over the years. Um, you know, they they talk about 25 years, and I guess they're pointing back to things like, uh, I mean, they talk about Joy Luck Club, of course, as the big Hollywood one from years ago, and that's even older i think but other smaller independent stuff like saving face and better luck tomorrow and stuff like that that's come out in the interim it's there you know it's just very few and far between so kind of like the point you were saying kevin is it still problematic to say well we need asian american films rather than asians in american films so i as you brought up you know john cho and um, Kyle Penn, right? Harold and Kumar. Are those the kind of movies that, that you were talking about, you know? When, when Asians can just make nonsense films, not great films. Um, you know, and a lot of people love the Harold and Kumar films. Are, are they successful by design at that point when they've become so embroiled in the culture that you stop thinking about, is this an Asian American film or is it just a stoner film? And we don't care who the stoners are because they're funny and, you know, you can relate to them. I think it's a very interesting discussion that's going on around all of this from the different perspectives, from the Singaporean perspective, from the Asian-American perspective, and, you know, from the Hong Kong perspective and the, and the China perspective and the perspective of any audience that's going to have to see this film. Yeah, um, I, I think I want to reinforce that point, Paul, that it's true that I think that the mainstream audience, whether it be from Asian American background, African American background, Caucasian American background, whatever background it be in America, I think a mass general audience don't want an Asian American studies class while they're watching a film, and that they're not interested in exploring that issue of um, uh, of identity and going into all that stuff. And perhaps okay, that's why Crazy Rich didn't go into that and that it was just trying to sell itself as a commercial film but here's the thing okay it, it was trying to also bank on getting the asian american audience by pushing that agenda of being the the next great studio asian american representation which i find very weird because the film is nothing but nothing about that um and the question is should it have and should it have bear all this weight on the shoulder? Because after it came out and it has all these, um, first of all, they sold it as this great big hope, the great yellow hope, for um, for lack of a better word, the great yellow hope that was going to bring Asian Americans to the mainstream, blah 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 blah, and that represents so much that everyone Asian Americans should be crying at a cinema that they're finally seeing themselves on screen. Oh my God, blah blah. Okay. And then it came out and people were like, yo, it's not really blah, blah, hey, it's not really that representation, it's not really, what about Singaporeans, what about the brown skin brothers and all that stuff. And then then it came out and it's like, 
oh, it's not really meant to represent everyone. Like, so here's a question. Should it have really bared all this weight on his shoulder? Personally, I think it's yes and no, because if your studio is using your film, that is not really about this issue to represent the issue. It's really your own fault that you become criticized for not being able to represent so much all these all these issues that your film was self- being sold to represent all these things. Um, and so for me, it's like, no, the film shouldn't represent Asian-American experience or shouldn't represent all of Asia or shouldn't represent all that thing. It's just a silly rom-com that happens to touch on those things very superficially and that, no, it shouldn't be taken that seriously, but yet it but yet it should be because they sold it as that. Um, I don't know what you guys think about it. Um, Wilson? Yeah, I don't. I, I wonder if that's something that's, that kind of changed over time because I remember when I when, when the movie was first announced and they, they cast Constant Zhu and um, Henry Golding, I, I subscribed to Entertainment Weekly, which is like as, as mainstream as it gets. And I remember they were they were on the cover of Entertainment Weekly. And, and if you read through the article, um, they, they did mention a couple of things about how this is like the, the, the first Asian um, kind of large studio film in Hollywood in, in 25 whatever number of years but it's that wasn't I wouldn't say that was the primary focus I mean it was still just this is like a, it's based on a huge book there's gonna they're gonna cast a lot of Asian people it's kind of cool and I wonder if it's something that that just changed over time because of what what social media did as well right you have a lot of at least for me, I know, I guess I follow a lot of, of, of Asian people on my Twitter feed. And I wonder if it's, you know, you always see them talking about how this is a, like a, a super huge deal for representation, especially over the past, I don't know, six, six, seven months. So I wonder if it's something that initially even the studios weren't thinking of, of pushing it as that serious um, of, of a film or in terms of how impactful it was meant to be. And then all of a sudden, because uh people in the general audience started finding about the movie and started kind of creating these kind of movements and asking people, you got to go support it, like Asian people. And that's when, when the film, like, as you said, maybe had a bit more on its, on its shoulders, even though it, it didn't, it didn't mean to. And that's when the studios kind of changed their, their marketing course. Cause, cause from just thinking back, that's, that's the sense that I got just thinking about how the, the film was, was marketed at the, the beginning when it was first announced compared to the past couple of months where it's been kind of nonstop, you know, you got to see this if you're Asian, this is a big deal which wasn't necessarily there before. Can I ask, Wilson, was this something your parents would go out and see? Did they see it, or is it on their radar at all? That's actually funny. So I, I had this conversation with um, one of my other friends the other day. Like, is, is this a movie that, that any of our parents would be interested in watching? And I think um, I, I can ask them tomorrow, but to be honest, I don't I don't think it's... I think, you know, my, my mom might be interested in watching it because Michelle, yeah, was in it. But aside from that, I don't know if it's something that, that would appeal to them because... It's, I mean, it's, it's, it, in the, at the end of the day, it's a romantic comedy. And I mean, they, they get a lot of those from, you know, they mostly keep up with still just kind of Hong Kong and I guess now a bit of China stuff as well. Uh, but for them, the only time they, they usually venture out into kind of Hollywood stuff when, you know, for, for, for bigger releases or, you know, we bring them to the film festival, things like that. But in general, um, I feel like they're, they're content with, you know, what they have from, kind of the Asian media and this if you if you take away the whole representation thing which I don't think they necessarily care about it's it's just a romantic comedy it's not something that would necessarily appeal to them I will tell you that from my own experience is that my parents were a lot more excited I haven't asked them about crazy rich Asians yet um, and I don't think they'd be interested because I remember that they were super excited about the corrupter and and the king when those mm-hmm. came out because it was 
wow, it was seeing one of our own on American screens. And it was a mad, that was a real pride because immigrant parents, they, they are proud that someone from home um, make it big in America. But right. I think for them, my parents or my pa- or our parents' generation is that they'll be like, what's the big deal? Who are these people? Like, who are these? Why should I watch these people? You know, why, why should I watch this movie? Yeah. And that's what I think um, that generation would, how this gen- generation would see this film. I guess I'll take this opportunity to jump in a little bit and talk about uh, the book and some of the things that changed. Obviously, when you have a book with so many chapters involved and they try to cram that all down into about 120 minutes, uh, a lot of stuff gets cut out. Uh, Some plot lines get reduced. And there were a couple things that were just out and out changed. And I don't want to get into very specific spoilers, but I will mention uh, a few things of interest. So the bachelor party, there's a huge bachelor party that happens in the movie and it's out in international waters and there's some crazy stuff going on there mostly for comedic effect and i think that that works fairly well in the book though no they go to macau uh before going off on some yacht and then the guys decide they've had enough of uh, the character i think his name is bernard and they ditch him and they fly to australia to hang out so <laughs> it's it's quite a different a different take on uh what ends up being a very short scene in the book. In fact, a lot of the character sequences in the book for the supporting characters, not really supporting characters because I think they get perhaps as much representation and time as as maybe Rachel does. Um, But in the film, they kind of push everything over to Rachel and sort of her relationship uh, with Nick. And so what ends up happening is you get, uh, and you guys talked about this, like the Astrid character. Her character gets cut way back and her um the the thing going on with her husband which i don't want to say too much about gets cut way down which is a crime because in the movie uh her husband whose name is michael teo and he's played by uh singaporean actor pierre pung if i'm saying his name correctly he is made out to be a jerk of the highest order in the film and in the book, there's a lot more to his story, and I'll just I'll leave it at that. And there, there's a lot more going on there, and where they kind of leave it off in the movie, um, Wilson, I think you were mentioning right the cameo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that happens in the book, and then there's a lot more that continues beyond that part, which is actually like a, a mid-credit sequence for the film. Um, in the book, that still is many chapters out from the end when when that encounter happens, and a lot, you know, goes on beyond that. That's very very interesting, and it and it puts the Michael character in a very different light. I don't know if they're going to follow that plot line in the second film, but I kind of hope they do because they just made him look like a real jerkity jerk, and I I didn't think that was fair for the way the character was written in the literature sense. Um, Another interesting aspect is uh, how Hong Kong, and in particular Hong Kong celebs, are represented in the book. Um, And if I can just briefly read a passage here um, as they're talking about the wedding. And this is coming, uh, this is Picklin reading to Rachel from the Singapore Tattle magazine. And they have the equivalent in Hong Kong. I think it's called Hong Kong Tattler. 
So this this is Pickle and reading about the wedding the, as they're getting ready to go to it. Um, Although the creme de la creme guest list has been more closely guarded than North Korea's nuclear weapons program, don't be surprised to see royalty, heads of state, and celebrities such as Tony Lung, Gong Li, Takeshi Kaneshiro, Yu Sai Khan, Rain, Fan Bingbing, and Zhang Ziyi in attendance. Okay, So <laughs> those were all potential people that they could have said, hey, come cameo in our movie, and they didn't. Um, but they're there in the book. In a later scene, Fei Wong is actually at the wedding. Um, <laughs> along with the Vienna Boys, Boys Choir, which they didn't do, uh, and the chief executive of Hong Kong. And at the time of this was written, uh, which was 2013, I think that was Donald Zung, right, Kevin? I don't think we had uh, CY Lung yet. Was it CY yet? I don't remember. Yeah. I, think it was, I think it was CY already. Was it? Okay, well, he was there. He was at the wedding. Um, well, so... CY can go straight to hell. Okay. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they they were there at the at the wedding as well. This is Aramis's wedding, and the one character who gets a little bit of play uh, in the movie is the character named Kitty. She's like a, a rising starlet in the Hong Kong and Taiwan film scene, and in the book, um, she actually is given a plot device that they end up giving to Rachel. Um, Rachel does something at the wedding with. A person of royalty who's actually played by um, Chris Aquino in a, in a very nice cameo. That sequence is actually given to Kitty uh, in a sense, although it's changed because they play up Rachel's background as a as sort of an an NYU professor, and in this case, Kitty is you know kind of recognized for what she does, being an actress and, and being in drama. But it's also mentioned that she's a backup dancer for Aaron Kwok. So again, another another nice uh, little Hong Kong detail that is just completely left left out of the movie, unfortunately for us Hong Kong cinema fans. So yeah, they and they ended up downplaying uh, quite a bit. Obviously, they have to. The uh, many of the characters bounce around between Hong Kong and Shenzhen, um, and as I mentioned, Macau and other places, you know, Australia, for example, throughout the course of the book. Um, and again, this is all happening in just like this week or so as uh, Rachel is there with Nick to go to their friend's wedding. Um, but uh, other aspects like Peranakan culture is kind of downplayed in the film. And, and that's a really big deal because if you understand the social economic dynamics of Singapore, you're dealing with old rich and new rich. And so the old rich are the young family and they're part of what is known as the Peranakan Chinese, who were the original Chinese who came to Malaysia and Singapore and made a lot of money and established themselves as families and built up their wealth over time. And there's a whole kind of culture that's grown up around them as what they call Peranakan Chinese. Uh, then you've got new rich, some of the new families that have come into wealth of late. And this is represented, for example, by Picklin and uh, Ken Jong as her father. Uh, the goes and kind of their gaudy sense of style and, and wealth on display. That's kind of there in the book, um, but they highlight some of the cultural aspects a little bit more, whereas in the movie, it's much more visual in terms of the displays, um, such as when she walks into the goes uh, house, their estate for the first time, versus when she meets um, Michelle Yeoh and uh, Lisa Liu, who plays... Uh, the, the grandmother, the matriarch of, of the young family. 
And so other aspects are, in a sense, played down, but other aspects are played up as well. Ken Jeong and uh, Aquafina as, as Picklin, they're given free reign to make those characters their own in the book. I mean, the, the, Ken, the Ken Jeong character is nowhere near as lively. Um, the Aquafina character is nowhere near as, as lively. She doesn't even get invited to the party in the book. She just kind of drops Rachel off and looks on and on and has to drive away. Um, so they allow the actors and actresses to, you know, put themselves on display a little bit, which I think is fine. But again, just some key differences. And I think that if you were interested in the movie and liked it enough that you want more details than the movie was able to give you, that you'll find the book uh, quite entertaining. And, and again, a lot more going on, especially with some of the supporting characters. And I'm interested to see where it goes, too, now that, I'm, now that I've started up with the second book. Uh, the music, yeah, I kind of agree with Kevin. It's, you know, does anybody listen to Shanghai Diva stuff except for people walking into Shanghai Tang these days? I mean, um, I don't know. I, I, a part of me kind of likes it because you don't hear that on soundtracks anywhere. But at the same time, it just does feel very old hat. And again, why would why would you not, you know, have... Um, you know, a younger, I was thinking somebody along the lines of even like a Coco Lee, right, out of Taiwan or, or somebody who's gotten a little bit of play, has released some albums stateside and stuff. You know, she did uh, some of the songs for, you know, but maybe she's too old school now. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a music guy, so uh, that's just my, my take on it. But um, it, I liked it just for the fact that it wasn't the standard kind of stuff that you hear um, these days. And I think I had a similar point with uh, the music that they put on at the end of uh, at the, of the Meg as well, even though it was kind of uh, a bit of a strange choice uh, musically. I knew you have to bring the Meg around. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> yeah, got to got to talk about the Meg at least one more time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the sto- story-wise, really, the way it's kind of condensed here in the film version, it's just the Cinderella story, really. It's the, the, the wicked stepmother is now a wicked mother-in-law. The stepsisters are now part of the uh, Araminta's bachelorette party. Um, but those elements are still there. But instead of having a person who's really coming from, um, you know, nothing, like your Cinderella, poverty, really, um, and, and depression, you've got a person who's a self-made woman especially when you realize that her mom has helped her by making herself come up and then allowing her to go to school. And, you know, NYU professor, somebody who's gone to Ivy League schools, maybe not in the 1% quite yet, but probably on track to get there pretty soon. And yet here she is, she's going into this world of the 0.1% or the 0.01%, right? she doesn't really need to uh that's that's the whole thing i think that's part of the rub that they're they're trying to get to but ultimately it still becomes this idea of you know yeah she's marrying prince charming and that's what the story is and so from that aspect i think not all that interesting because you see that all the time um i will say henry golding i don't know where they dug him up from but i'd like to see a lot more of him and if they don't get idris elba to do james bond you know, sign him up because I think he's <laughs> he's got the look, and I'd 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 love to see him do it. 
Um, it's a shame that they didn't get Daniel Wu in this film because I think he would have been a perfect match. But hey, he's busy doing what he's doing. Let him keep doing it because I, I love what Daniel Wu does. So, you know, again, I, I, I loved the book. I liked the movie. I hope they make more movies. My biggest fear is that once this wave comes around, much like we saw with, you know, years back, All-American Girl, you know, Margaret Cho's series, or you get, you know, the Wang Wang movie every once in a while, and then the lull comes back and nobody starts, nobody invests in stuff like this anymore. And we have to wait, you know, another five or 10 years for another one to come around and say, oh, it's the first time in so many years that this kind of thing's been done. Hopefully that won't happen here. I mean, I think we talked about this last time, Kevin, the Disney Mulan film is going to be a real kind of litmus test for this to mm -hmm. see if they can pull this off and they can, you know, um, get people to come out and respond. And hopefully this is a precursor of things to come. Oh, can we um, take a second to talk about the Mahjong scene, by the way? It was, I don't know if you guys play Mahjong. Yes. Um, there's a huge, there's a huge um, plot turn. Well, not huge plot turn, but a huge scene involving Mahjong. And, not um, not in the book, I, by the way. So not in the book, okay. But it was a terrible mistake. It was a huge flop because, okay, I think I assume that it's just one game, right? Okay, and we're gonna talk. We have to get into the mechanics of mahjong. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> at the beginning, Michelle Yo, pong. First of all, her ponging is not a huge event. It's just a pong. Like <laughs> first of all, it was like such a weird like. Oh my god. The table's turned. She knows how to pong. It was like, what? So pong is essentially finding three of a kind at the same time. Michelle Yeoh's character pongs on a tone, which is like a circle-y character, okay? Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then what's her name's character? Uh, Constance Wu character is playing the sticks. The the salty, as we say in Cantonese. The the sticks. And then you know, and you know Mahjong is that you do not, unless you want to, you know, just get a dollar instead of winning 10, you can go and play all kinds of tile and mix them on one hand. But the thing is, if you really want to win big in Mahjong, you stick with one type and you stick with it, right? So the whole thing is that she gives up the sticks and then Michelle Yo takes the sticks and then she, she ends up winning and then you see this huge hand of sticks. But then the thing is, wait a minute, she ponged on a tone. What the hell? She was playing a tone. <laughs> So she wasn't playing the stick, she was playing the tog. So there was a huge continuity error. And as a Chinese person, I'm sure a lot of other Chinese Mahjong players would pick up on this. And then that's just go like, hey, Hollywood. Just typical Hollywood <laughs> playing Mahjong. You want to see a real great Mahjong scene? You watch Lust Caution. That, that Mahjong scene is the bomb. That's all I can say. No, so, no, no. It's Fat Choice Spirit all the way, cover, yeah, yeah. covering oh, the dots with rice. Come on. Come on. All right, all right. Fine, <laughs> but for serious depiction of mahjong, it's it's lust caution all the way because Ang Lee knows mahjong, dude. Whereas Zhang M Chu doesn't, and that's the difference between a weo Asian filmmaker and an Asian American filmmaker who just directs music videos and now makes pretty. Music. <laughs> hey, just, no, there's, a, there's actually an article on Vulture specifically breaking down that that mahjong scene. I'm just after after what you say, Kevin. I'm just kind of curious to go back to see if they they actually mention that because they go into into detail i was just skimming through it about how how much cultural significance that scene has but i don't know if they they caught on to that kind of obvious detail that you just you just mentioned yeah that it was a bad mahjong yeah. strategy 
and the huge continuity flub. It's like actually I saw um the the hand that Constance hand that was easily a five pointer and the same thing for for Michelle. But the thing is, continuity error, guys. Like, come on. Okay, that's it. I'm. I'm, I'm... <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Wilson, any final points you want to say before we kind of wrap this thing up? I guess one maybe plug I can do just coming from Canada. I don't know if you guys are just it, it's related to this, but I don't know if you guys are are familiar with the show Kim's Convenience. Um, yeah, it's on so Netflix. It's, yeah, so now it's on Netflix, and it was, it's a it's a Canadian show. It's filmed in Toronto, and I and I just bring it up because I think, you know, what I was saying before in terms of you know having you know eventually, or you mentioned this as well, just Asian people immersed into you know television shows, uh, movies, and for feeling normal. So I mean, Kim's Convenience. It's it's about you know, like a immigrant Korean family. They own a convenience store, so it's it's still very much about the kind of immigrant story, um, but. But surprisingly, I mean, it takes place in Toronto. All the um, supporting characters outside of the kind of the immediate family—they're all—they're multicultural. You know, people who are, are brown, Caucasian, whatever. And I think it's when it comes to you know Asian representation in some sort of North American piece of work, I think Kim's Convenience actually does does Asian representation a lot better, and it kind of subverts a lot of the the problems we talked about when it comes to representation or, or stereotyping in Crazy Rich Asians. So um, just just something that's out there for, for people to kind of keep an eye on, especially now that it's on, it's on Netflix. All right, excellent. Kevin, final thoughts? Um, I, I guess um, I'm more down on the film than... I seem to be, and no, I had fun with it. I laughed, and um, but there were just too many things distracting me, and I admit that those are my own biases. Um, the film itself, I it's fine. Um, I actually know someone who worked on it, um, and I'm very proud of her achievement. Uh, she's Singaporean, um, so you know, sure, if it means more Asian American, if it if it is the necessary path to lead to more Asian American representation in the industry, that's great. Um, I had hoped to see more Asian American names in the credits, not just as in front of the camera, but also behind the camera. Um, and that's, I think is the next big thing that like, um, yeah, great on camera re- representation is also great, but we also need to ensure that Asian Americans also need to be able to work behind the camera that, you know, you have someone like, um, Chloe Zhao, who's not, who's a, a Beijing-born filmmaker, but um, educated in London, educated in the States, and is now um, a real indie darling. She made The Rider earlier this year, and that was a great, great film. And she's been de- making these films about the West, um, Western, Western genre, but not nothing about the Asian American experience or the Asian experience at all, which I think is very refreshing to see kind of like an angry route of an Asian filmmaker proving that that he or she can also tell American stories or whatever stories that that we're not just restricted to our own culture. And I think that's the important milestone that we should be aiming for is that Asian American filmmakers don't have to tell Asian American stories or that I, as an Asian person living in Asia, doesn't mean that I'm only qualified to talk about Asian cinema and that I can also talk about American cinema. I can also talk about um, British cinema. I can talk about you know Western cinema, as well as the Westerners, and that my identity shouldn't restrain me, as such, because you know I watch as much films as those people, so why not me? Um, and I think that's really what what I want to, or as an Asian person or Asian American person, I that's the kind of thing I want to break down. Um, yeah, it's great to 
be represented, quote-unquote, but it's not real representation unless we're telling the same stories everyone else or everyone is telling the same kind of stories or this that that in that we're able to tell we have the flexibility to tell the stories we want to tell and not just a story that we think we own um so i don't think this film quite does that but i hope that it's a step to that next thing listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jubo of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via our website at concast.com. You can find us on Twitter at concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at eastswests. Um, please do, though, follow along with our special guest for this episode, Wilson, and all the stuff that he does over at his site. That is uh, Throwdown815 or Throwdown815. Um, sir, anywhere else that they can find out more about you, anything you want to plug, uh, social media or otherwise? Uh, no, I mean, it's pretty good. I got the website and Twitter account, which is also Throwdown815. So, um, yeah, just if you're bored and want to read something, check it out. <laughs> All right, excellent. And as always, I urge you to follow along with all that he does as he moves and shakes across the movie-verse. And that is with Kevin and what he's doing. So where can they sign for... Ugh, can't talk. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Uh, I am on Twitter. I am at The Golden Rock. That's one word, The Golden Rock. I am the entertainment editor of um, Cathay Pacific's Discovery Magazine and Cathay Dragon's um, uh, uh, Silk Road Magazine. I'm sorry. I totally, like like stubbed on the actual name of the magazine i work on um it's september is here and um as always i forgot what i've written about in september so go and on um, you know go on the plane and read what i've highlighted um and i'm i also have a piece on um a monthly listicle piece that is on discovery.cathaypacific.com which should be easier to find if you click on uh, our stories on top um and you will see the kind of highlights there in September. It's not online yet at this moment that we're recording, but I'm sure it will be when um, when the time comes. Um, and I have this website called Asia and Cinema that I'm supposed to be updating, but I haven't updated um, for quite a few months. But I swear I will get to it. This is like a placeholder now. I swear every month is a placeholder. I have a website. I will update it. And when I do update it, I will come back and say I've updated it. But right now at the moment, I will update it. I promise. Um, it's called Asia and Cinema. That's www.asiancinema.com. That's one word. Um, and work-wise, uh, I'm very, very, very happy to say Man on the Dragon, which I subtitled, has done super well in Hong Kong. It's past the 11 million Hong Kong dollars mark, which is very impressive considering that it opened to 220,000 on the first day. Um, and that it took a month. It took a month, but now it's at 11 million. So I'm very happy about that. Um I'm not sure what else. Oh, I have Suburban Birds, which I subtitled, is now on on the festival circuit. Um, and then uh, Project Gutenberg, which I also subtitled as Charon Fat and Aaron Kwok, that 
opens in Hong Kong on October the 4th, and I think in China at the end of this month. So, yeah, those are my upcoming projects. All right, excellent. Our next episode, which um, because we've got an episode of uh, Hollywood on Hong Kong with Kenneth Brorson that's pending, but our next episode proper should be episode 265, and I think we're going to, or at least I'm going to try and talk about uh, the new Netflix show series, uh, Taiwanese Tale of Two Cities, which is getting ready to drop here tomorrow, I think, or is it next week? It's um, already dropped. Has it? Mm-hmm. I was looking yeah, at least for it, on my Netflix. I, I was looking for it today. It it was not showing up. I think. Um, I think might side. It's be days. after midnight. Well, when fifteen minutes. Okay. Yeah, it's probably even fifteen minutes or so where you are. Yeah, yeah. But the only, it only has one episode so far. So they're doing weekly episodes. Weekly. Because, oh. Um, yeah, because okay. uh, three different uh, uh, TV stations in Taiwan is also showing it. So they're just rolling it out as a as a typical TV series schedule. So one once a week. Okay, well, uh, maybe I won't talk about that. Maybe I'll talk about Please Take My Brother or something else that's uh, recently arrived on Netflix since Welgo doesn't want to send any movies my way, so uh, not much I can do about that. But we'll be talking about something, so all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying, remember kids, party responsibly, don't drink and use your rocket launcher. Please just don't do it. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. And it's like you said, you know, it's about the time when people can start just making films, good films and bad films, right? And that's when we'll know that uh, you've made it. And uh, then you can be like Ang Lee and make The Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) The Hulk was underrated, goddammit, you know it. (laughs)